I'm Matt Booker. I'm Dave Laird. And I'm Jessica Anthony. Glad to be joining you here in the great concavity where the truth will set you free, but not until it is finished with you. sister thank you for that Love it. never had that intro before uh and yet it is one of my favorite lines in infinite jest so thank you thank you jess for that welcome everybody to episode 56 we are joined by very special guest jessica anthony who um you've probably heard of if you've listened to the show at least you know one to five times because her name comes up a lot on here um, just to give you some more background, if you're, if you're still wondering, Jessica is the author of the novel The Convalescent, which came out with McSweeney's in 2009, uh, the multimedia novel Chopsticks, which was on Penguin in 2012, and her most recent book, which just came out on Little Brown this year, Enter the Aardvark, which is a finalist for the New England Book Award in Fiction and has been optioned for a film, which I just learned today, and I'm wildly excited about uh and then jess you've won all kinds of crazy awards too so for example you are the inaugural recipient of mcsweeney's amanda davis highwire fiction award your books have been published in a dozen countries your short stories have appeared in best new american voices best non-required reading which is such a great series Uh, mcsweeney's the idaho review lots of other places and you've got all kinds of cool money coming in, <laughs> grants and fellowships <laughs> from uh, the Creative Capital Foundation for Innovative Literature, the Boliasco Foundation in Italy, the Bridgeguard Foundation in Slovakia, the Maine Arts Commission. Um, and coming up next year, you're going to be spending a month in residence as a research fellow at the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. Yes. And Jess lives in Maine and teaches in Maine. Jessica, welcome to the show. So great to have you. Thank you both so much for having me. My pleasure entirely. Well, yeah. we could argue that for a while. I got to say, we're pretty, uh, psyched. we're pretty psyched. You know, going back, I was actually going back through my emails before uh, this we recorded today. And I you know, found several mentions where I people had asked for book recommendations going back 2011, 2013, 2010, where I had recommended the convalescent over and over and mm-hmm. I, I went through a period of years where like i was like where is the new jessica anthony book at mm-hmm. and uh you know, <laughs> I, I bought chopsticks a super interesting book uh, and i actually really do love that book by the way it's i would say that book is like a really interesting experiment in publishing um yeah and then i felt really betrayed this year where no one like told me on the front page of the New York Times like there's a new Jessica Anthony book coming out, <laughs> and like I sort of found out um, around the pub date, and I was like, I I considered myself like a super fan, and so I want I wanted to um, buy this book as soon as I heard about it, and I did, and I devoured it in like two days. Absolutely love this book, um, yeah. but it's just a huge thrill. I mean. To have you on uh, because I really do feel like, um, you know, starting with The Convalescent, if you haven't read it, uh, go out and get it. I've recommended it mm-hmm. over and over and I will continue to do so. Um, but I, I just felt like you're such a talented writer and that, um, 
you should be better known. I so I it's whatever you know dozen people listen to this show, and I'm kidding. It's actually more like two dozen. Two but, dozen. <laughs> um, um, if if they all buy the book, I will be super happy because I feel like you're extremely um, talented and deserve a wider audience. Um, Absolutely. And and this is I promise you we don't say this to every guest, but um, like just to have you on and be able to talk to you about this book in particular is like, it is one of the reasons why like Dave and I want to talk to any writers is like, you're on that list. So you guys, I'm blushing. Thank you. Very kind of you. Um, So, (laughs) you know, Dave uh, gave a great introduction for you. And then I was like, well, how should we summarize this new book? And it's like, it's really Mm -hmm. tough to summarize. (laughs) Um, (laughs) (laughs) Like, I would say it's partly about aardvarks. It's partly about taxidermy. It's partly about a a closeted gay Republican. Uh Um, And that, like, that is like Uh, saying Moby uh, Dick is partly about a whale, partly about a captain, (laughs) partly about a boat, partly about... So I think it's a tough book to summarize, but it has, I think, a lot of similarities to The Convalescent. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think... You know, it's it's fresher in my mind just because I have been reading it and rereading it in the past month or so. Um, but I I just have so many questions about you know how you got to this point. Since since we're since we're you know on a Wallace podcast, I mean, I can talk a little mm-hmm. bit like about studying fiction in the '90s and kind of coming into. A, uh, an era of literature that I think was just incredibly excite an exciting moment uh, in America, which was sort of this new millennium of um, of writers who were just trying to break out of this kind of habit of realism that we had trapped ourselves in for so long. And so really, you know, when I was starting to enter into some writing workshops, you know, as a student in the 90s, I would see, the work that was being praised was really like either you were a lyrical realist or you were a minimalist realist. You know, those were kind of your only two options. And so it was a real delight for me to, in, I think it was like 1996, to pick up an, an issue of Harper's Magazine and to read The Depressed Person for the first time. Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I remember just feeling changed reading that story, thinking, this is a totally fresh kind of energy. This is like a performance. You know, what is this sound? It was almost like the first time I heard Nirvana. Like, (laughs) what is this? And how did this happen, you know? Um, And so then, of course, that that story became a gateway into the world of, of David Foster Wallace's fiction, but also so many other writers who were kind of working on changing the voice of fiction and trying to find some other route to truth. Um, you know, George Saunders, of course, was was uh, yeah. another hugely influential writer for me. And so I was start- I started to write these weird little stories in, you know, in my MFA program and just, you know, with other writers that I knew and just I would share them with people that I met. I lived all over the place. I lived in Alaska. I lived in San Francisco. I lived in Eastern Europe. You know, I was in Poland mm-hmm. teaching English for a while in this tiny little border town on the on uh, to the Ukraine um, or to Ukraine, I should say, called Retro. So I like was there for a few months, eating a lot of cabbage, 
And then like I lived in I lived in <laughs> Prague. Yeah, you know, I, I lived in Prague and I and I was teaching English there oh, nice. in a um like a chateau at, like in northern Bohemia and then I had this like really cheap apartment in Prague. So I'd be I'd be like writing stories for two weeks and then I would go off to these ten day teaching intensives and teach Czech businessmen and, you know, drink beer for breakfast. It was great. Um, and just, and, you know, continue to sort of write like little weird stories that people didn't really get, you know what I mean? Like you'd write something and they'd be like, oh, like, all right, like what, like, what is this type thing? So then I ended up um, going to an MFA. I went to George Mason University, which uh, had uh, Alan Schuess, who was one of the you know most seminal and instructive and sort of like a lamppost figure for me. I mean, he really I taught him. me how to kind know, of get serious with my work. I worked for one of his. I worked for one of his publishers. Uh, oh, really? I met him a couple. I met him a couple of times, and, and he wrote a ton of uh, book reviews. I, I yeah, absolutely loved his work. He used to review for NPR all the time. Yeah. Yep. Oh uh, yeah. He was a generous man, very gracious person. Hugely generous. And his only question that he ever wanted to ask you whenever you saw him was, how's the writing? I mean, that was the thing that he cared about. And so his, his radar was just really, like, it was tuned to the same station, right, that I wanted to listen to. So Alan was, was a hugely influential figure for me. And there's so was another um, novelist and nonfiction writer, Steve Goodwin, who was teaching there. And interestingly enough, Richard Bausch was teaching there. Richard Bausch really came out of that tradition that I was trying to escape from. But, you know, working with some of these folks who were trafficking in realism, I think, I think in the end really helped me. Like it helped me because it, hel- it helped me to, s- to stop sort of like being a- a quite as gimmicky as I was as younger writer. And it started to like read my characters much more holistically and for landscape and for history. And so suddenly I was discovering some, you know, some new and interesting like textures in fiction that I never knew I could really write. And so, um, that kind of com- like combined with my own passion just for music in and voice in story, um, which I think really you know characters come come out of sound, you know, for me. So like you have the name Rovar Fliegman, <laughs> yeah, and that has and, yeah in the convalescent, and you have you know Alexander Payne Wilson, and you have the sort of sonic quality of those two character names, and that. That to me, like I hear the music behind those names and suddenly I know everything about these people, you know, in the way that you know everything <laughs> about Holden Caulfield, you know, Holden Caulfield couldn't be named anything right. other than Holden Caulfield, you know. So, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. So there's something there's something about like the marriage of intertext that intertextuality, you know, uh, of sort of history and culture and, um, you know, and sort of the collision between irony and realism with this love of of language, this love for words, you know? And so out of that, I think somehow um, sort of found my groove, right? Like I really just, I want, I want fiction to, to entertain me as I'm, as I'm writing it. I want to feel constantly engaged with the story that I'm writing. And that means that like, I'm constantly trying to elbow against expect, you know, expectation and try to like subvert the reader's expectation Mm -hmm. with my own expectation. And that means sometimes that bonkers shit happens. Right. And that, (laughs) and that, yeah. And then that also (laughs) means that like, sometimes you're also just writing, you know, a phrase that is elegiac and out of nowhere, you know, like I want Mm -hmm. language to be totally egalitarian in fiction. I want 
to hear multitudinous seas and carnadine in the same moment that I want to hear, I put my thing down, flip it, and reverse it, you know? So. <laughs> wow. Well said, Jess. Uh, so anyway, I mean, I don't know if that's the, an- the kind of answer that you're looking for. Like, um, but, but artistically, like, that's the best way that I can kind of explain how I came to mm-hmm. the attitude that I have towards fiction, right? Which yeah. is, that it, like, that's where, to me, the truth lies. It's in, like, this really murky place. Um, that that is constantly asking me questions, you know, as a, as yeah. a novelist. So, yeah, like it's the truth is in some murky like Hungarian uh, bog. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, and it's funny. Like um, David Foster Wallace famously had a big feud with John Updike. I don't know if you guys remember that, but oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, scathing yeah, review. Yeah, yeah. Um, we called him like a penis with a brain or something like that. But um, thesaurus with a thesaurus. A thesaurus. Think, right? That was the better that, word. Yeah. It was a thesaurus. <laughs> Oh, amazing. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, Updike said something that I think is really kind of interesting, and that is, like, all stories are born from two unrelated events coming together. And so, obviously, Wallace is going to reject, you know, that kind of reductive attitude. But I think there's a lot to be said as you're starting out as a writer, thinking about collision in fiction, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And the the Hungarian story, like, I I was, like... I don't know, when I was living in Prague, I, I spent one weekend kind of loitering around Budapest. It was January. It was freezing out. And I went to some, like, outdoor antique fair. I don't know why I did this. Um, and I met up with this Hungarian man, and we just, like, started talking all about the, the history of Hungary. And he said, well, Hungary, Hungary really has no history. It's all just a big, it's all a big lie. It's all just all mythology. There's really no quote, quote, Hungarian history. So that stayed with me. I thought that was kind of interesting. And then... Mm-hmm. I was, and then uh, you went and wrote it, basically. Well, you know. You're like, well, I can I can do that for you guys. Like, well, sure. <laughs> just, if it doesn't exist. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and yeah, and then I was in a, a mall in um, in uh, Seven Corners Mall, Tyson's Corner, Virginia, right? So it's like Northern Northern Virginia, the Seven Corners Mall. And there was a, you know, there was a McDonald's in the mall, and it had a, um, a picture of a school bus, like, on the wall. And uh-huh. so it was this kind of like we talk about a collision. Well, it was a, it was like in that moment, I just started thinking about like, why am I thinking about Hungary staring at this, you know, <laughs> image of a bus on the wall of a McDonald's? Like, what is going on in your head? So, you know, so that that to me is where like to like that impetus to write fiction oftentimes mm. will come from a collision like that that feels really reductive and simplistic, but it can you know, be planted and then grow into something that's complicated and, and yeah. you know, intertextured and, and interesting. So, um, so I don't know. I think maybe Updike and Wallace were both right in that regard. But mm-hmm. So, okay, so for people who haven't read The Convalescent, just to give like a very brief overview, um, I guess we could say that it's about a, like a mute Hungarian small person living in, in, in Virginia who sells meat out of a bus. Uh, so in the moment when you're, you're in McDonald's, Jess, and you're looking at the picture of the bus and you're thinking about Hungary, you've just wedded those three things together. And like, there's your premise for that novel, basically, right? Like yeah. the meat in McDonald's, the bus that he sells it out of, and his his like lineage backstory, basically. Yeah. That's awesome. I yeah. love that. Well, in the original first line of that book, if I can remember, it was something like... Um... My neighbor, Mr. Friendly, has just chopped me into several chunky loaf-sized pieces or something. And so it was really like, 
<laughs> it was a it was a very different opening, you know, before I found the, okay. the you know the true opening. But yes, that's right. Yeah. That's kind of the impetus mm. for that story. But so for, for you, I'm assuming you were going to ask about Enter the Aardvark, where where that was coming from. But yeah, keep going with that. Where yeah. where did you yeah. see an Aardvark, uh, or how did you get an interest <laughs> in the Aardvark? Yeah, <laughs> or was so, it taxidermy? Well, and so Enter the Aardvark actually occurred simply through the title. Um, I'll often write from titles as well. And so uh, back in, like, I just wrapped up the, the work on chopsticks, and I was really keen to get back to writing sentences. And um, I just start, you know, I'll often collect kind of just scraps of, uh, of like, phrases, words, whatever, that seem interesting to me. And you know, this phrase, enter the aardvark, just popped into my head. And I was like, well, that's kind of a funny, weird <laughs> title. You know what I mean? Like, that's a, that'd be a weird mm-hmm. title. And I sat with it for a number of years. And then, you know, in 2015, in the run-up to the election in the U.S., um, I had a sense that I wanted to write a political novel of some kind or a political story of some kind. I thought, well, enter the aardvark might be the title for whatever it is that I'm writing. And um, I I started toying around with this voice that was actually pretty pinchoni and it was kind of legging off of, um, you know, a screaming comes across the sky, right? And so it was like mm-hmm. a whirling mass of vapors is unhinged, hurling throughout our space for an infinity to collides with an ellipsis, which does not let go. And suddenly, like, woo, we're off and we're like, we're writing the... <laughs> Very speedy evolution of an aardvark suddenly, you know, like, okay, yes, that's happening. I love that part. It's um, so fun. And, uh, yeah, and then, you know, once you've created an aardvark, you know, and that and that aardvark is, like, being dealt with by a naturalist in 1875, it's like, well, it made sense to begin to follow the aardvark. And so my story about mm-hmm. this kind of, you know, hypocritical, uh, extraordinarily vain and blind you know, American politician <laughs> is paired with this story that follows the stuffing of the aardvark in Victorian England in 1875. And there's this parallel story that emerges naturally, of course, because it has to, um, through Titus Downing, the taxidermist who stuffs the aardvark, mm-hmm. who also is closeted, and but living, of course, in a very yeah. different time period. So... The two, right. yeah, so these two kind of love stories began to play off of one another in some kind of amazing ways. It was really extraordinary to see. Because, <laughs> you know, when you're writing yeah, fiction, you know, very, you don't have a plan. You're just going to, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, anywho, that's how that can I read? Can I read a quick passage of uh, The Evolution of the Aardvark from page four? Please. Um, uh, they swallow everything, fattening into fish, and these plumpy fish grow long, swimmy. They shake the oceans into a state. And some of these fish hanging out at the edges of some of these pools are bumping their snouts into the earth. They want to dry off, go upland, and lo, here begins the great creep. And will you look at them there and their ectothermic tetrapod vertebrates go? Um, shades of Madame Psychosis. I kind of like pulse <laughs> me with the like, lo, the, the earth was without form and void. Look at those fuckers dance. Kind yeah. of like vibe going on here. Sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I also thought that Maybe we should rename the podcast to The Great Creep, Matt, because it's capitalized <laughs> there in that phrase as well. <laughs> I mean, I thought that it, it was like, I thought of this, that Carl Sagan line where he's like, you know, to make an apple pie, you must first invent the universe. Um, it's oh, that's like, great. You know, how do you get flour? How that's do you cool. get wheat? How does, you know, how does wheat grow? How do you have to like, where does the dirt come from? 
and mm-hmm. uh, also like this the Terrence Malick movie the Tree of Life where he's like I'm going to tell a story about a family let's go back to the dinosaurs and start there um, yeah right and, and I, I felt like a, <laughs> that was a, a pretty big, long sequence too if like, I remember correctly like yeah seven it's minutes. long like, like let's let's just right. go with that so I mean um, I, and I it's love just, that like I think that that's super um, interesting strategy where you you're like, let's start at the beginning. The earth was without form and void. <laughs> and, you know, this is like the way that the Bible starts, right? Yeah, um, spirit hovered over the waters. But within yeah. a few pages, you get us like up to speed and we have um, Ostlet, right? You say Ostlet? Ostlet, yeah. Ostlet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think you didn't, um, you did it very succinctly and tightly and, you know, what you said earlier about, like, getting rid of some of the gimmicks in your writing um, or in writing in general. I'm not going to say your writing, but um, yeah, sure. that reminds me of uh, something like I learned whenever you pitch anything like to fiction or nonfiction to an editor. One thing they're looking for is like, why does this matter? What, yeah, that's right. What 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 are the stakes in this? Yeah. And I right. think. You can't just be like, oh, I wrote something that I thought was cool. It's like, well, why does this matter? And I think yeah. within a few pages, you get us from some really descriptive language and something really cool to like, okay, now now I, there's a hook. And yeah. I'm, I'm in and there's something, there's some stakes here. And there's a person involved. And I want to keep turning the page to see what's going to happen to that guy because I'm, uh-huh. I'm already connected to him in some way. Yeah. Um, so I, well, I, I guess th- that's not really a question, but I can force it into one. If it, no, that's question, great. It's really more of a comment. <laughs> it's more of a comment than a question. <laughs> well, that's what Vonnegut the said. I mean, academic conference. Vonnegut, Vonnegut's famous for saying, you know, don't waste the reader's time. Like, right. don't waste their time. What are you doing? Like, what is the, what right, is the yeah. reason, the, the raison d'etre, right? Like, why is, is this... Yeah you know, four pages of madness here. But of course it sets the whole tone for the entire novel, even though mm-hmm. even though the voice yeah. changes dramatically, it's still yeah. it's like riding this wave under the novel. You can kind of feel it as you go. It's like tugging things along and creating this you yeah. know, this propulsion and this momentum. So Yeah, it's like natural selection dragging you through through the eons in, into like the twentieth century, twenty first century. There's a very interesting thing that I noticed, like in the last two weeks, I, I re-reread The Convalescent. And as like Matt was saying, it's it's typically like if I have friends who are not really readers and they're like, what should I read off your bookshelf? I just give them The Convalescent like instantly. Um, and if they've read that, then I give them like White Noise by Don DeLillo. Oh, yeah. Because um, like those two books will make anyone fall in love with literature, I think. Oh. Um, but like, so they're both really fresh for me. And one thing that I noticed in both is this this really cool juxtaposition you do where you're interweaving the present narrative um, with chapters that are based in the past that are that are inextricably linked to the present moment that we're in and, and with the characters that we're with yeah the protagonists and you kind of have this this amazing way of like um, helping us reckon with the present by way of the past yeah um, and both of your books have that kind of cool back and forth structure and it's almost like a, like a kind of a tennis match between yeah like past present and you're putting the pieces together in both kind of on in their own stories singularly but also like collectively you're starting to see the ways that they're bridging and the ways that they're like coalescing together 
um, I think that's that's a very like sweet feature of your of your work and your style. Thank you. Well, and Thank you my, very much. My, my question for that is like when you're writing it, I, I, are you going back and forth or do you get really hooked yeah. into one or the other and you just can't stop writing it and you have to break it apart later? Or yeah, what's, what's, your, yeah. what's your process on that? Oh, it's definitely back and forth. Um, you know, yeah, okay. because, yeah, you just don't know how one section is going to feed into the next Um and I usually I usually write about a thousand words a day when I'm drafting a novel, so I try to like stay in that forward, you know, sort of that forward motion. And so that means like, if I I would worry that if I if I tried to write one section out, you know, and then piece it together, that the mm-hmm. that that like the music and the pace would be way off. Um, again, like when you're writing by ear, if you're a voice writer, I think you're dependent on kind of the time that you spend in each section. And so, I mean, it's not that it, it, it couldn't be done, but I suppose that the way that I do it is, is really the tennis match. Um, I think, that, I don't know, the energy is captured there on the page, I think. I feel like otherwise, yeah, it, it would feel a little dead, you know? Um, hmm. But but the fun, of, the fun for me there with the historical side is, like, I don't consider myself to be a historical fiction writer, you know? Like, yeah, I don't write yeah, historical totally. fiction. Um, but... I do write stories that have landscapes that occur in the past and I enjoy like interrogating cliches of history and using like mythologies and kind of, um, you know, historical assumption in a kind of, in a blunt or a, um, or a hyperbolic way to like make some kind of commentary about the present. And so in that way, it becomes like historical satire. It becomes like a blown up version, mm-hmm. a version of the past that's recognizable as the past, but it's not, it's not some like loose or fake kind of shaky attempt at like realistic historical fiction, which I, I don't like reading yeah. historical fiction. Um, I, I never believe it. It feels really flat footed to me and really dead and unimaginative, um, you know, for by and large. I mean, there are obviously exceptions with these grand statements, <laughs> but but by and large, yeah, I don't yeah. gravitate to those novels because it's just like I just will feel like I, I will hear a contemporary voice trying to persuade me um, in the, the like the voice of, the, of some history that I know is not is not accurate and so the whole mm-hmm. prep the whole premise feels extraordinarily false to me um, but there's something fun mm-hmm. in that in the, that notion of like a contemporary voice trying to recreate a historical landscape or historical character so like you can play with that right like if you deliberately understand that the whole thing is bullshit right then suddenly like you can do anything you want <laughs> Um, yeah. and, and the history can and you like, do you do like extremely yeah. playful things with the past yeah That's especially right. the convalescent I suppose oh right. yeah I mean well and you know like I found this amazing primary text from the 12th century in Hungary so <laughs> for folks who don't know like the other half of the novel this might turn people off you guys but the other half of the novel <laughs> like really is like, or like a retelling of um the emergence of the Hungarian people into the Carpathian Basin, like how the Hungarians yeah. actually settled the Carpathian Basin with all of these various tribes. And it was true, mm-hmm. there really were these, you know, it was like 11 or 12 tribes. And so I was like, well, what if there was like a weirdo 13th tribe of total losers who like <laughs> were just going to get shit wrong, you know? Um, and so like, 
you can i don't so it's like playing with like some kernel of the truth and then just going you know going out and doing your own thing with it um but i find myself when i'm reading your books like equally hooked on both storylines like typically like the main action is kind of the present and the present characters who are you know contemporary with us more or less um but i find myself like at just as hooked on on the stuff that's happening hundreds or thousands of years ago as i am with sort of the main action sure um because you you know there's going to be a payoff of a way that they're going to converge together in ways that are uh, like hilarious and mystifying and, and incredibly poignant um so I, I love that quality of of the way that you're looking at kind of like a, a really grand scope of humanity and like kind of zooming out and like looking at, at, a, at a broad picture of how all these things are just in the same universe together it's totally cool. thanks and yeah can i ask um like you know what kind of historical research did you do for this because i do feel like some <laughs> yeah. of it like the darwin stuff and like yeah. the tools that a taxidermist would have in their workshop at that time, like a lot of it did seem like plausibly historically accurate to me. It was, um, yeah. Like, was yeah. one of your parents a taxidermist? Like, you <laughs> have pretty knowledge with like, the workings of the shop. Like, no, my mother uh, is a Latin teacher. Um, my oh really? Yeah, I took mm-hmm. a little Latin. <laughs> <laughs> Can you say that? No, in Latin? None I of it stuck. Latin. None. None of it stuck. I no. saved Latin. <laughs> what, what did <laughs> oh, you did you? Okay. What did you ever do? I saved Latin. Um, yeah. So no, I have no previous experience with taxidermy, and this yeah, is okay. you know one okay. of those. Well, this is or one meat of those, sales. Like, oh, actually, you do. Well, yeah. yeah, I worked as a butcher in Alaska for a few right. months there. So, but I mean, like, well, in some ways, I think this whole premise of you know having this quote quote direct experience and how that translates into novel writing is kind of BS because. I mean, what like my one summer that I spent cutting meat in Alaska has nothing to do with Rovar Fliegman. I mean, yes, I know what it feels <laughs> like to handle chunks of meat and to cut it from the bone. Yeah. You know, but beyond that, you know, because it's not like a straight up realist novel about a butcher, that experience yeah. is pretty ancillary to the agenda of the work, you know. And and I would say like we what we're suffering from right now is this like profound distrust in the imagination you know and it's a shame because like there's a there's a lot there's a lot there to to believe in it seems to me you know in terms of the dream and what's what we can kind of like the way that the way in which we can see um who we are based on simply like what it is that we desire and how those desires manifest in our dreams and it this all of this kind of comes right out of like the surrealist movement right like i'm really into andre breton mm-hmm. and his philosophies his i don't know if you guys have ever read the manifesto of surrealism but it's brilliant it's it's totally a bananas I piece haven't. of writing have you okay. read it oh you guys have to no, read it I it's haven't. so it's so wild and it's so wonderful because it's like endorsing this anti-rationalist um psychology where you basically mm. are giving equal equal weight to the time you spend you know your mind spends dreaming as it does in as he would put it the rational world and so mm. you know if we if we as readers give more um credit to the the sort of the potential of the imagination and the writer's imagination we won't kind of turn our noses at writers who don't have necessarily the quote quote direct experience because really like the way in which a novelist uses experience even if you're writing you know strict like lyrical realism it's going to be 
um, like radically unpredictable and radically different from what you know what what the not like what's actually happening in the novels and, uh, and what the characters actually want in the novel. So, for example, if you're writing a story where there's a, a say, for example, a father who is maybe a carpenter who has a daughter who, um, you know, is dating this new boy that the father disapproves of. So that, that like, sensation of disapproval, like, where does that come from? Does it have anything to do with, like, the carpentry? You know, does it have anything to do with, like, even potentially having a daughter or even having a child? No, it's, like, that yeah. sense of, like, yeah. betrayal. It's, that it's like, the emotional truth, the emotional quality that really lives in the imagination because how do our imaginations form? Well, they form from memory. And so we institute within ourselves at a very young age like this, um, this structure and this pattern of thought, you know, that organizes our lives and our experiences and our emotions of those experiences and makes sort of choices about what it is that we prioritize, right, based on what it is that we remember. So, you know, that to me is the really interesting part about novel writing is like what writers choose to like recontextualize in novels, right? Not what they report. Um, I'm I'm about to teach a course in auto fiction, <laughs> which is oh, which fun. is new for me, man. Because like I don't read a lot of this stuff. Like I'm talking about you know Ben Lerner and Carlo okay. Nausgaard and Rachel Cusk and Sheila Hetty. Sheila Hetty. Yep, Sheila Hetty yeah. and Jenny Ophel and and I'm reading this yeah. stuff and I'm like I'm amazed because. You know, it's so far outside of the sort of fiction that I write, but I, I really like yeah. when it's done well. I really admire it, and what what I admire is like taking your little your literal experience and your, you know, your quote quote autobiography, if you will, and translating it into something that actually is musical that does carry the music of the imagination. You know, and that I think is extraordinary because I, man, I don't know what I would have to say about like this white girl from upstate New York who grew up with a Latin teacher as a mother, you know what I mean? But like, maybe she, maybe she'd have something to, interesting to say, but I doubt it um, because I've already lived it. Like, I don't know. There's no, for me personally, there's very little room to play. So um, mm. that was a big, long, rambling answer to what was probably <laughs> intended to be a shorter question. But Never. I, I think you're making me realize I have some mixed feelings about this, though, because, like, I, I agree with you. And, like, I fall on the side of imagination. But there's cases like, you know, Saul Bellow wrote, like, Henderson the Rain King without ever going to Africa. Sure. And, you know, there's, like, Janine Cummings, this big oh, Christ about American dirt. And it's like, yep. well, I'll just use my oh. imagination to see what it's like to be a poor Hispanic child. And like, where what is the line between yeah, you know, imagination and like cultural appropriation right now? Sure, like sure. Maybe don't don't go too imaginative, or go so imaginative where it's like probably no Hungarians came to you and said, "Wow, you really did a disservice <laughs> to our." No, but I did write yeah. four gay characters, and I wrote black characters, and right. I wrote um, who else was in there? in Enter the Aardvark. I mean, a whole host of all different kinds of people and characters. And, you know, because I'm, I'm a, a person alive in the world and I'm surrounded by people of all different makeups and stripes. And um, I guess I'm on Zadie Smith's side with this when in her terrific essay. Um, it's called In Defense of Fiction, basically. And why novelists really do have the right to write whatever it is they want. The problem with, like, Janine Cummins and, like, assorted others who get it wrong 
is that it, what, what that boils down to, at least from my perspective, is a fundamental misunderstanding of the novel's artistic agenda. So Janine Cummins really believed that she was, well, I don't know if she believed it. I haven't talked to her, <laughs> but I'm assuming that she believed or she was told that she was John Steinbeck and that this novel was a work, a, a work of profound realism. And what it really was, was a realistic thriller, you know? So it's realistic, but it's not realism. And that's a, I mean, it sounds like sort of a facile difference to just kind of make a blanket statement like that. But actually, if you really boil it down, like that's where the problem lies. Because just because you can write something that is quote, quote, realistic, well... It, that doesn't mean that it's real. It has a semblance of realism, right. but it's not realism. And boy, there are just so many examples in that novel that fail as realism. And that, that even, frankly, fail as being remotely realistic. Um, and so, you know, that is a, that's just an, an artistic... Um, uh, it's a fart, isn't it? It's right. just a big fart. It's right. like... It's, a, it's an artistic, you know, gaffe. Um, it, it's an error on the part of the novelist. And frankly, it's an, a huge error on the part of the editor who promised this writer that she was um, a certain genre that she was not. Which is not to say that it isn't a ripping story. Everybody loves this book. A lot of people love this book, right? Not everybody. A lot of people love this book. I haven't, I haven't read it. Yeah, and and everyone, you know, really just, oh, it's great thriller. Oh. And so it's like, well, look, there's nothing wrong with, you know, wanting to have a great page turner, great read. Like Stephen King yeah. was, you know, really def- like defending that novel. He was really on board with it. So it's like, that's cool. Like write a, write a big freaking page turner, you know, and and your and your landscape can be the border and the, the landscape can be about that serious shit but you have to know as a novelist that your agenda is may, it may be like aiming towards something that's realistic but really the the a priori agenda is to just tell a, like a ripping thriller you know um and so it, yeah it was it was a mistake it was a fart what, what can i say um anywho so i don't know if that answers your cultural appropriation question so much but it's, I, I mean, think we asked about taxidermy <laughs> tools, but I, that's, that's. I have one more. I have one more question for you about this because I, I guess I think when we're talking about like what is historically accurate, I think you know it felt an amazing uh, level of detail in the the historical parts, but also in the contemporary parts, and like the level of detail you put into the characters or the level of research, you know, even like it feels yeah. very accurate for like a guy who lives on the hill and like his phone is blowing up and he's got these clothes and he's got this girl, like every detail of it felt right, and I think that's I guess an, uh, it's almost like an artistic difference, but like. I, I think it also comes down to truth. I and mean, you brought up Zadie Smith. I remember after her second book came out, it was a total failure. It's called The Autograph Man. Yeah. And she yeah. later said something like, you know, that book failed because uh, I put a lot of stuff in it that wasn't true. And it's a strange thing mm. to say about a, a fiction novel, right? Like, well, of course, the whole no, thing is it, not though. true. But I think other writers were like, ah, oh, yeah, that's that's a pretty bad fart you know what you're saying like that's a pretty bad flaw and i think wallace even had a quote that's like you know fiction or non-fiction is about what's real and fiction is about what's true 
and yeah and i think that you know when i read your your novels i feel like this is this is true like there's a lot of truth in it even when it's Mm -hmm. absurd even when it's like crazy situations it still feels true and sure i I guess you know what what makes that so like when when you hear that what does that bring to mind for you well it reminds me why it it takes me so long to write novels (laughs) (laughs) and no seriously sitting here googling your name every year like Come on, new Jessica Anthony. Come yeah. on, new Jessica. Oh, no, no. <laughs> well, you know, this this book originally was envisioned as part of a trio of novellas that I was planning on oh, writing. Okay. And so um, cool. there are two other stories that kind of sit around this Enter the Yardfark. And one of them is a story that takes place in Haiti in 1968. Um, and I worked on that thing for years. I mean, I really... Mm. It, was, it ended up being about, about 150 pages, but it just, it that was a fart for me. Like, it just failed. It, it didn't work. It wasn't true. And no matter what I did, I just couldn't get it, you know. I, I couldn't be happy with it, you know. And so I didn't, I, I couldn't get to the point where I believed it. Um, and so maybe I will. I hope one day, <laughs> I hope one day, you know, this story can happen. But, um, you know, I had to be just brutally honest with myself and decide not to publish it. Um, and then, you know, there's another novella that I think I actually will be working on because I'm still interested in it and I'm curious about it. Um, but, uh, but Enter the Aardvark just, you know, there was something about the voice and sort of the narrative distance and the sort of kind of like the sound of this novel. It just, it made sense to me. It clicked in it. And the first draft I wrote really quickly in like six weeks. Um, so, you know, sometimes that happens, right? So like one of the novellas, you know, I'm like chipping away at this ice mountain for six years and I'm just in like writing hell I'm in purgatory you know and then yeah and then like oh my god one summer like you're just you know you're just writing this story and it's working and you're interested Mm. and you're like you're moved and you're compelled and you're like leaping out of bed in the morning to like get back to it right like I can't Mm -hmm. wait to see what happens um I can't get this down fast enough yeah just like so addicted to it so you know, I, and I guess what's, so the difference I, you know, I would say between, you know, me and maybe somebody else my age or other folks who maybe published their first novel 10 years ago, like I did, it's like, you know, and they've got some other books. Yeah, but you know, maybe those books are like, you know, maybe, maybe those books are not as, as great or I don't know. I mean, I guess it's hard, it's hard to say. There's some people who've been writing like superlatively and steadily and they have a, you know, a new book out every two or three years. And I marvel at those folks, you know, yeah, but like Don DeWillow, for example. <laughs> oh, he's got a new one coming. Just... I, I'm so excited yeah. to read it. So I excited. know, but me too. Well, and part of it too, of course, is like, it's your life circumstance, right? I mean, like, yeah. everybody, everybody is a different stage in their life when like the writing is just harder. And so you've got to fight mm-hmm. through it. And uh, so that happens too, but. Yeah. How long did the convalescent take you to write? What was your timeline on that one? So uh, I wrote the first three quarters of the novel, I would say in about nine months. And then Mm -hmm. the last quarter of the novel, trying to figure out what what actually was was going on. That took a few years. So it was was about four years all in. So. But I, I'm hoping that this won't happen. <laughs> like there won't be a huge delay in the next one. So <laughs> I don't know. We'll yeah. see. Well, and hopefully cool. the next one doesn't come out in the middle of a pandemic. So uh, Jesus Christ, you know, right? I 
I feel it was really like the, bad you guys. It was you. the worst week. It was the worst week. Yeah. Yeah. It was terrible. It was terrible. You had book tours lined up and everything, and like, just shot. Oh, the whole tour, and you know, it like yeah. uh, we had. Um, you know, this amazing, miraculous New York auction for the novel. And then we had one in Britain. And it, there was, like, all of this force and momentum behind the novel. And then it just, like, it literally was published on March 24th, you know. And that was the week mm-hmm. that everything yeah. just changed. And so, you know, like, kudos to my amazing team at Little Brown. Holy cow. You know, they really rallied and they got Mm. this book out. And, you know, I think all things considered, um, we did well, uh, but we did very well. But uh, yeah, your your label mates with Wallace. Oh, I mean, and he was published in McSweeney's too. So, so super cool. I mean, you know what? Super, super interesting. Mm-hmm. you know, pattern to follow. So I, I will say no more about that because I certainly would not want to put myself anywhere near his talent. But yeah, it's been it's been fun. <laughs> well, I would. <laughs> I have no problem doing that, Jess. <laughs> um, l- let me ask you a little bit about the, the aardvarks because um, this is a bit of a change of subject, but I swear to God, when I was growing up, I was taught that aardvark was a synonym for anteaters. And... It's not, yeah, right. It's not. It's a totally different animal. No, it's not. They're only found in <laughs> Africa. Um, but like the, the the taxidermy of an aardvark, um, you know, have you seen an aardvark? No. <laughs> I mean, you know, I sort of knew as much about aardvarks. And, and we can kind of come full circle back to the taxidermy question, too, which I never answered. Um <laughs> <laughs> Because <laughs> that happens sometimes. Um, oh, yeah, yeah I, I really knew. Yeah, I knew about as much about aardvarks as you got as anybody does, right? Like, okay, yeah. aardvarks. I know that they're an animal, and that like <laughs> they they have kind of funny ears and a snout, and like yeah, the anteater. They're sort of like an anteater. I mean, that's literally all I knew yeah, really yeah. going into this novel. So when I started Amazing. like yeah, reading about the aardvark, I started you know the metaphorical corollaries between an aardvark and this hypocritical mess of a corrupt politician i mean we're just um, like so fun <laughs> it was like this completely irrational looking beast you know with these rabbit ears and this long snout and this kind of whaleish turtleish you know carapace for a humpback and like it's yeah. whiskers that, like it's whiskers grow right underneath its eyes the aardvark i mean there's something ridiculous and freakish and almost ugly about it but then if you like the more time you spend with it there you realize they're actually kind of quite beautiful and so that like that visage of the aardvark as i was like working on stuffing this thing was so neatly paralleling how i was feeling about alexander Payne wilson you know like falling a little bit in love with the fact that he's a hypocrite, you know, even though at the same yeah. time I'm like throwing these daggers at him, it's like, oh, but you sweet little thing, you just don't get it, you know. Um, so yeah, I mean, like the the uh, really, it's kind of it's an answer about character. I have to say, you know, it's like Matt. I mean, it's such a good question because really, for me, in researching the aardvark and learning all about taxidermy and like the nuances of like what Victorians might 
what, what tools Victorians would have used in England. Because, you know, taxidermy was huge. I learned this, but it's huge, huge in the Victorian area. I, I had no idea. Mm-hmm. But they were real celebrities, these taxidermists. And, um, you know, the, the, <laughs> the great ex- exhibition actually happened in 1950 or in 1851, you know. Um, oh, and cool. so people would like, oh, you, they came to see the stuffed beasts, you know, and the daguerreotypes and all this kind of new newfangled shit and super macabre, you know, but th- that's who they were. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah, like, so weirdly, it was um, through the research that I began to understand and feel something for this, you know, flawed contemporary dude in D.C. who really just is, uh, he's just at the moment of potential awakening. And, you know, I won't say anything more, but he arrives at that moment in the novel where he has the potential to change. Well, and that Mm -hmm. reminds me of the difference between um, D.C. and New York. There's an old joke that you can be openly gay in New York, but a closeted Republican. Um, so oh, like, yeah, sure. N- no one wants to say they're actually Republican. Um, but the, <laughs> the thing about the, uh, the taxidermy, I That's love... That's a good one. You know, uh, the aardvark is really like a literary symbol in this book, and I felt like, you know, especially for the, the congressman, Alexander Wilson, Payne Wilson, he... It's like his albatross at some point and like, hey, did Coleridge ever yeah. get asked, did you really see a fucking albatross? Like, who cares? It's a symbol. Um, but, but I, you know, when you, br- you take it back to Darwin. The rat symbolizes obviousness. <laughs> but it, Dar- Sorry. with, with yep. Darwin, I mean, that the whole thing about like rebirth and like really just questioning, you know, what other animals are out there that we don't know about? Like there's this great sense of the unknown um, and there's this, sure. there's this word I wanted to ask you about. I don't know how to pronounce it, but like Jiva, Jiva, J-I-V-A, Jiva. which is, yep. Jiva. can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah. yeah I mean, so like this is a, a Hindu concept that is related to sort of the essence of, um, the human spirit and how that essence essentially is challenged with. Uh, transformation and has the potential for transformation and change with every reincarnation. Um, and so this is, you know, we are, are all familiar with, of course, with the notion of karma, right? And so mm-hmm. um, the jiva really is that, it's that energy, right? It's that kind of that living energy. An animating that, life force. Yeah, that, that's right. That doesn't, yeah, okay. that doesn't change from life to life as it's lived. And so, you know, and, and it takes many, 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 many transformations for there to be a change, right, uh, in the jiva, for it to be... Um, you know, for it to be kind of ameliorated, for it to kind of recover its failures. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know, that 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 word just kind of struck me as correct and right. And when I, I learned that John Edmonston, you know, was like one of the first people who brought um, the study of taxidermy to the University of Edinburgh, you know, um, in the 1800s, and that he was from you know, New Guinea, and that, you know, I was looking up New Guinea and researching, like, religion in New Guinea and reading about, like, the Christians and the Hindus who were living there. I was like, well, this makes sense. Like, he would have, there would be some notion of this Hindu concept quite readily at Oslet's fingertips, and um, and that would translate down to Downing. And so it, it just sort of, like, it all kind of, like, logically made sense. I would say that more than any other piece of fiction, I began to trust, like, the logic of plot 
um, with this with this book, uh, and and I began to realize that like plot has its own agenda, and you really have to trust it, and you have to like allow yourself to follow what just logically would happen, like what logically comes next. And so I would just say that the Jiva was a part of that logic. It was like just a part of what these men would know at that time. Yeah. Well, and I felt like the book itself was tightly plotted, and there were a lot of interlocking parts like that. Um, and it yeah. sounds like some of them kind of came to you um, organically, but there's a similar interest sure. in the convalescent. And I'm not I'm not going to spoil either book for either one anyone, but your interest in this uh, idea of really reincarnation or transformation in some ways. Um, and I, I'm going to yeah. try to ask this in like a totally serious way, but like in some way, <laughs> do, you, do you believe in reincarnation? Oh, no, no, I don't. Um, <laughs> I mean, not, I think, in the way that, you know, that you're asking, perhaps. I mean, I guess I would just say, like, you know, I believe in the transference of energy that I think, you know, obviously just being alive on the planet and, you know, being married to this dude I'm married to. Like, if I go first, you know, I think that he will be thinking of me and kind of carrying me in his mind, you know, um, mm -hmm. as we do with people that we've lost. And so... But no, I mean, do, does the spirit re-enter into another body? I mean, I did a whole bunch of research on like these crazy stories of reincarnation where like people have claimed to, you know, or they, like they, they like three, like a three-year-old boy in Missouri, like wake up, wakes up one day speaking like a German dialect you would have heard in like <laughs> 1795, you know? Um, uh -huh. And so, you know, there are these strange aberrations, but no, I'm, I'm not really on board with that camp. I'm not, I'm not uh, into ghosts. I'm not into reincarnation. Um, I just think it's an interesting, it's an interesting route to truth though, you know, isn't it? Like this, yeah, this yeah, notion yeah. of like, um, and, and also like, it, like, li like literally, um, Alex Wilson belongs to a group of folks who up to this moment have really benefited from an apparatus or a sort of a structure of society that um, enables him to fail and be reborn and to fail. And like, yet again, there'll be another place for him. Like this always like, well, this is good news for the white dudes, right? Like they've, they've gotten by with like <laughs> this, this like legacy of constant failure. And then somebody props them back up again. And that's just never been an option for women. Like you fuck up one time and you're screwed. I mean, that's it. Like you get one shot. And that is, that's how it is, of course, for many people in this country, many quote, quote, minorities. Um, and I think so I think something this book is maybe trying to do or aims towards is like unifying the rest of us who've sort of been cast uh, like outside of these folks who constantly get to fail all the time and like having like the force of them start to press upon him. Right? So like rather than, um, you know, just in, like enabling him to like find his rescue, he instead has to start to face up to like his fundamental flaw and the tragedy of his fundamental flaw, like not being able to be who he is because of the party he belongs to and its requisite intransigence, right? Like this, the fundamental flaw is that like his, his lack of self-knowledge, I mean, it's punishing himself more than anybody, right? Like he, he is denying himself something. And that to me is so mm -hmm. profoundly yeah. sad, you know, and, right. and that, Denial is then also, of course, it's affecting everybody else. And it has been. Like, this is the legacy of this problem of, of the hypocritical politician is, like, 
it, it, at the same time, it's like both about this isolated solipsistic sadness with this one character, but it's also about the rest of us who are sick of this shit, you know, and like <laughs> ready for, you know, ready for new people to kind of like step up who are going to tell the truth about who they are and what they want and how like women and minorities are not marginalized, but actually like the great massive populace in the United States Right. If you put everybody together, like all the quote, quote, women and minorities, right, like you're going to have like a, a much greater populace. And so we're actually the, we're, the major, we're the majority, folks. So the majority yeah, yeah. will is not being represented. And so, like, I don't know, it's a comic novel, but it kind of like throws these little daggers in those directions. Like, yeah, mm -hmm. we feel we feel his like lonely sadness, but also really like, come on, how far can you have empathy for like how like how far reaching can you go to actually try to get your reader to feel something for someone who is such a such a prick? He's such a little vain prick, you know. Um, <laughs> and a so. great way that you instill this throughout the book is putting price tags next to all of, oh, all yeah. of his um, all of his clothes, all of his furniture, all of his um, like insanely expensive accoutrements in his house, his vehicle. Um, I also wondered like how much yeah. research went into those you finding out the price of like the shower head that he has, for example, <laughs> that's like thirty five hundred dollars. I mean, you know, I, I will say as a literary confession that that is a deliberate nod to American Psycho. I think that's pretty obvious. But uh, okay, um, I, but yeah. I've actually not read that. Like, kind of just to just to diss like Brett Easton Ellis a little bit. Oh, okay. Yeah. Just to like, just to like stay in Wallace's camp a little bit. You know what I mean? Sure. Like, yeah. Why not? <laughs> um, you can see the movie, Dave. He does the same thing in the movie. So. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, but Americans, I mean, yeah, American psychos, it's a, it's a horror novel. I mean, it's, it's a genre mm -hmm. book. It's not, it's, yeah. I would not call it quote, quote, literature. Maybe we can edit that out later. I don't know. Maybe we won't. But he's going to, Brady Snells is going to come for you on his podcast. You I know, know that, right? I know. Is he still alive? That's a terrible thing to say. Um, we'll have to fact check that. Yeah. Later. I think he's making a lot of money off his podcast too through Patreon. Oh, God. Um, this kind of goes back to the spirituality question, and we, which we were on a few minutes ago. So I'm just going to circle back. Um, there's a great line about taxidermy on page 16, 17. Taxidermy is not about death, it's about life. It's rebirth, it's religion, and every carcass that falls into Downing's hands is actually reborn. It is Christ beckoning Lazarus to come out, out of his cave. Um, and you, I've noticed that Lazarus is kind of like a real recurring character in this book. Um, another mention of him on page 149, 158. Um, this, you have a this thought on page 158 about Lazarus is one of the most poignant uh, and interesting things I've thought of in a while, which is Lazarus, who once he came out of the cave and Jesus wasn't there because he was like done with him, must have realized there was not much more to do other than go on unceremoniously living because after the miracle's over, well, then what? Um, so Matt asked about like uh, this animating principle, about rebirth, about reincarnation, now we have like resurrection is one of the sort of motifs with with Lazarus showing up a bunch. Like, what what's going on with, with Lazarus here? <laughs> um, <laughs> gosh, I don't know if I have a tidy answer for you there, but um, you know, it's not really I, a tidy question. So that's fun. yeah. You know, I mean, it, it's it's all in my mind, kind of just pointing towards Alex and asking him questions about 
um, mm-hmm. you know, what he would gain from from going back into the cycle again and being rescued and yeah. being propped up after this, you know, and there's really nothing there, right? You just keep you just mm-hmm. keep going back into your cycle. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's just kind of I think provoking the question about um, you know, the possibility of awakening yourself out of um, you know, your habit and towards a place of of greater consciousness. Um, you know, it, it that moment where, you know, we're sort of wondering about like what Jesus would do with him, right? Like this notion that mm-hmm. like um, Lazarus is, uh, he's on the receiving end. He's being affected by Jesus. And so Jesus has this like action upon him that ends up being, you know, this tremendous mythological story full of metaphorical import. But yeah, I mean, that occurs over a few days in the Bible, but then... But yeah, but that sort of then what? I don't know. That just seemed to yeah. me like. <laughs> then he just has to like keep like, being so then, like a farmer, like whatever. So he just he had, yeah. Like, so Lazarus yeah. just becomes like another boring fop, like the rest of us. Like I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it's really kind of pathetic. Um, but yeah. you know, I think p- potentially that's that's that that question, that problem is sitting in the back of Alex's consciousness, right? Like he is reluctant to maybe face the truth because there isn't much there for him, right? What's the truth going to give him? You know, I mean, he's going to lose all of this ambition. He's going to lose, you know, his, his entire career. So what's there for him? Um, Mm. And he doesn't really, he doesn't really realize right about like what, what love can do for him. Um, You know, which is its own, I don't know, there's, that has all of its own complications. But it's interesting to me, like, I think about Wallace sometimes, and Wallace didn't write that often about love. He was not a, he Mm -hmm. he didn't write love stories. Or if he did, like, the love stories were pretty failed. Yeah, yeah. He liked talking about sex, but not about love. Same with with Updike. (laughs) Updike would say, uh, you know, when has happiness ever been the subject of good fiction? Every, you know, everything we Mm. do in life is taxed by the specter of future death. And yeah, well, that's that's good. Pretty bleak. Yeah. Um, But uh, did you say that? What he actually I know the actual quote. I I just made I said that what he actually says is fucking death and it's fucking great. What he says is (laughs) death and its adjutants tax each transaction in our lives. Uh, And that's actually, I think, better. But. This reminds me of what I was going to say earlier or ask earlier in that I think some people might read Alex and feel like he is actually evil. Like, And w- one yeah. of the characteristics I was reading earlier uh, about serial killers was that they're capable of self-constant self-deception. And that is Mm. that they're able to sort of compartmentalize to a degree where they can just be like, nope, that's a separate part of me, and I didn't do that. And they firmly believe they're innocent and that they did not do Mm. it. And that sort of constant self-deception is like, I don't know, on some other like Maslow hierarchy of needs or like scale of, you know, (laughs) self-preservation or actualization, like it's pretty low down there. Like if you can't get past that, it's like you're down there with mm-hmm. the children, right? Like in your own <laughs> human development, right? Like you're just like, no, I'm not Wait guilty. I'm not guilty. I didn't do anything. And I think I see some of that in Alex, right? Where he's like, mm. he's able to compartmentalize enough to say, it's not me. I'm, I'm totally, I'm the good guy. 
you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but don't we all do that to some degree, though? Sure. I mean, maybe all of us carry a little bit of that madness. I mean, I quite agree that that's, sure. that's a defining characteristic of, a, like, a sociopath and a murderer. But maybe that's it, right? That, that that's what we all do when we have to. Um, Because, you know, like sometimes being willfully ignorant about something is exactly what what needs to be done in that moment, right? In order Mm -hmm. to get us where we need to go. Um, And so I guess the danger becomes when it like, when you like allow yourself to taste that sweet fruit too often (laughs) and suddenly suddenly you find yourself, you know, truly in full self-denial and I guess technically like a a potential murderer. Um, But, you know, his, but his willful ignorance was definitely also something I was interested in. Like he, you know, Oliope calls him out on this quite often. You know, Oliope is the Mm -hmm. African-American Rhode Island congressman (laughs) who's a Republican who lives with him in his townhouse. And Oliope stands to kind of, you know, gently and calmly explain to him you know, who he is and what he knows, even though that conversation is never had outright. Olioke is there to talk to him about the Namibian genocide and use words mm-hmm. in front of him like genocide. Um, because yes. Alex, of course, is far too, um, I don't know, his, his Barbie brain can't really handle <laughs> that hard, that, like the serious stuff, the hardcore stuff. Yeah. Um, and words like Hermann Goering. Yeah, like. that's right. Like, <laughs> German like a Nazi. Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. But but there's something, like, is he evil? Gosh, you've really got me chewing on that. That's a really great question. I mean. Well, and I don't want to over-psychologize I mean, him because I actually think it's a really interesting idea that we yeah. all have this element. And there's, you know, what pushes, what separates us from the serial killer is like, maybe we have some other inner defenses built up inside of us besides this. And we don't have to resort to self-deception that often because we have some other uh, mechanism for handling, you know, our own contradictions or, you know, uh, I I, I think we check ourselves a little more than, you know, a guy who is out legislating against his own kind, you know, traitor to his class. Right. That's right. Mm -hmm. Um, That's right. But I got to get to one other question before uh, I forget. And that's the parts about Alex are written in second person. Um, Yeah. Yeah, you. uh, Can can you talk to us about, like, did you naturally just go to that? Or did you try a few different things and and that just felt natural to you? Or what what was the reasoning behind writing in second person there? Yeah, I I started uh, writing those sections in first person. And... Mm -hmm. I just hated it. It felt so exhausting. It just was exhausting. Like he, I was like, I don't want to be in this head. Like this is an awful place to be, you know. And then it it also just raises all a whole host of other problems with developing credibility with a first person narrator who is unreliable. That um, right. it just felt like a like a hugely unappealing task. And so I started messing around a little bit and I slipped into the second person and immediately wrote three pages and was like, wow, well, that's interesting. Okay. Um, And I still didn't fully trust it until I wrote the line, um, no one knows you suck Greg Tampico's cock. And then I was like, okay, that's a good line. I like that. That's funny. And that's fucking terrible. You know, like I will go with that. And so... And I remember it was a very uh, it was a very vivid moment when I sat back in my chair and I was like, "That's the voice. I'm in second person. I'm writing this entire 
story in second person for Alex. And so, um, I don't know, sometimes I think it just takes a little bit of practice to find that right angle of entry. But once you have it, you know, you and you've got to trust it. Like, that's where the work comes, I think, that novelists don't always do, especially if you're just starting out writing novels. It's like you kind of commit to a point of view, and then it's kind of failing, right? Like it's Like, it's withering at your fingertips. I don't know how much fiction you guys have written, but like... It's not a lot. You know, that, that, that there's that feeling, though, when you've written, you're writing something and you're like, God, this is like slipping away from me, you know. Um, and for me, that usually boils down to point of view. And sometimes if you switch the point of view, you, fi- you find the strength and the heft in your prose. And, and that's definitely what happened with Enter the Yardfark. It had to be second person. And of course it did because it's about us, right? It's about mm. the reader as much as it is about Alex and the reader's own feelings about Alex and kind of quietly in a subterranean way being confronted with their own you know dozens of ineptitudes that are familiar to Alex's ineptitudes and our own vanity and our own willingness to kind of tolerate these motherfuckers who've like had so much power for so long and so you know like it, the, the novel at least for me it's like scratching at me as much as it is um Alex so yeah it's about you which is all of us yeah do you think that second person can be a little bit judgmental too like you're doing this oh yeah doing that um but it also can be like can create empathy for the character in a way because now like i'm the character sort of like you've sort of put me in the driver's seat of this character and now i'm like imagine myself doing these things sure which yeah a lot a lot of them are awful but a lot of them are like well maybe i feel i feel more of what this character is feeling because of the second person Sure. Framing device. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a really cool point of view. Like you can vacillate between empathy mm-hmm. and indictment, you know, very mm-hmm. smoothly and very cleanly. And so, you know, for this particular character, I think it made a lot of sense. Um, yeah. I, you know, second person for me, like my personal opinion about the point of view is that it works best when you're writing a character who is very, very far outside of your own you know, familiar experience or autobiography. Like if you're writing an outlandish character, like, you know, mm-hmm. maybe, um, you know, I, I, I teach creative writing, I teach fiction and my students are always writing these like wretch, these wretches, like these like horrible drug addled, ho- poor homeless drug addled, you know, whiskey drinking, um, heroin shooters. And it's like, okay, well, <laughs> like what, like, let's maybe, let's just like take this character. Let's like, you know, mess around with the point of view and see what happens. And then it, it's funny, like you, you throw a character like that in, cause they, like, what are they doing writing about these drug addicts? You know, they're this like really like classist, you know, upscale yeah, bourgeois totally. liberal arts college. Like, what are you doing writing about this? Like, you know, heroin addicted homeless dude. Anyway. Um, yeah. but you know, they, then they, they write in second person and suddenly like it becomes about them and mm. like all of this kind of stuff leaks out about their own biases and their own class bias. And it's like, wow. Okay. So that's why you're interested in this character because you're writing about yourself, like how you feel about seeing people on the street and homelessness. And like, so there's mm. something true there, you know, like your instinct yeah. to want to write those characters. Like you're trying to figure out your place in the world. Cause like you feel this guilt and I get it, you know, but sometimes like the point of view can be instructive in that way too. It can teach you more about like you, which is fun. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, Jay McInerney is a master at it, right? Like uh, bright lights, big city, I believe is the novel. It's like, yeah, at 6 a.m., do you know where you are? Yeah, it's Bright Lights, Big City. It's second person. Really, really amazing second person narrator. 
Um, anyway, so it can be, I, I think, but I think it's rare to find it when you're like, yeah, that had to be in second person. That's rare. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I've, I've read yeah. some books that I did not like in second person or I would say I could yeah. not, I could not read. Yeah. Do you remember read. what they were? Uh, should I call Should I name them? Um, we don't need to name names uh, you're like yeah that guy teaches with me he's my best friend he sits across from me every day yeah no I know no you bastard I just think it doesn't work sometimes and like you say I think it's better when that character is farther outside of of who you are and you're not trying to do too much with it like I think mm -hmm. carrying like a 500 page novel can be exhausting for the reader in that so I'm actually really glad that you broke it up between going back, you know, going back and forth yes. between time periods yes. and point of view. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a 200 page book. And that I think in those right. small doses, you're able to get in that character. Um, my last question for you on that is like, is it a bit like a puppet master? Like when you sit down to write and you're like, is it more like third person where you're like, Alex Wilson does this or is it more like you are going to drive here and do that like which one feels like you're more in control in that situation hmm. I mean I think they both have different reasons for being in the novel like there there are moments when it's important to be pointing a finger at Alex and moments when it's important for the reader to feel as though Alex is looking at himself in the mirror um, and mm -hmm. so you know I I, I guess I would maybe make the argument that, that you could say that it's a, it's a perverse kind of omniscient second person because I am, <laughs> I'm behind it, right? Like mm -hmm. I am making decisions about what, like what direction that arrow is pointing in. And so that is exercising some authority over the second person. Richard Russo actually pointed that out to me. I was like, okay, yeah, that's fair. You know, hmm. I am definitely behind there. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the, the joys of writing in this particular point of view. And it's unique to second person. I mean, maybe you could do it with, um, let's see, like you plural, right? Like second person plural. That might be interesting. Mm -hmm. But that'd be kind of fucked up. I don't know if that would work. Um, <laughs> Y'all. But yeah, there's like, isn't there something, or like we, or like maybe we, you could do something mm -hmm. fun with we. Um, mm -hmm. But uh but yeah, I mean, this was this was my first foray into really, I mean, a, barring a few exercises that I'd written over the last, you know, however many years in second person, this was my first real foray into it. So um, I, you know, I couldn't, I, I really couldn't believe that it was happening when I started writing. I was like, I can't believe you're going to do this, you <laughs> idiot. What are you thinking? Um, but, you know, hey, <sighs> you got to take risks, man. You got to take those risks, I think. So, yeah. There's a great Chris Adrian endorsement on the book jacket of the convalescent that reminds me of what we're talking about of, of this idea of like identifying with the character um, who normally maybe we don't think we would have anything in common with. Sure. Um, and he says that uh, you've given voice wry, sad and arresting to the wounded little homunculus that lives <laughs> in all of us. <laughs> and like, that's a great way to, um, to capture that sentiment, like that, that we all have like an aspect of Rovar Fliegman in us. We all have an aspect of Alex in us. Uh, these, these darker, you know, withering parts that sometimes rear their heads in, in our psyche and sometimes in our actions in our thoughts. And we're like, where, where did that come from? You know, and mm. you give voice to that in a way that, that is like causes some cool self-reflection moments. Mm, thanks. Yeah. 
Yeah. Maybe this is a good time to um, to hear uh, hear you read a bit of your new book, Enter the Aardvark. Sure. Do you have a, a passage picked out for us? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I can definitely choose something. Did you have a, a, a section in mind that you wanted to hear me read? Um, I'd be happy to do that, too. Oh, I never thought of that, actually. That's cool. Um, I had... Um... I had page 89 flagged. Okay. Starting with the 75 inch TV um, to read, but I'd love for you to read it instead. That'd be great. <laughs> okay, yeah. I'll read that little section there. That sounds great. Cool. Um, cool. So, this is a, a moment in the novel when um, Alex Wilson has been. Um, essentially arrested um, for breaking the Lacey Act, for carrying a gigantic taxidermic aardvark in the back of his Chevy Tahoe. And he's been on, he's been on this date with a woman named Toby Castle, who all you need to know about her is that she looks like a Fox News anchor. Um, yeah, and totally. she's the daughter of a suit like this wicked tech billionaire in the U.S. And he has plans to marry her. Uh, because because of who she is, and obviously being gay, and how it would look politically. Yeah, yeah, being gay, he's really you know, he's not really into her, but he's going to be into her. Okay, so <clears throat> here we go. They're in bed together, and the news is now flashing all over the media of what's just happened. You turn on your seventy-five inch Samsung widescreen four K Q nine F series UHD TV with HDR three thousand nine hundred ninety nine dollars in your bedroom and watch as the middle aged brunette in a marigold pantsuit, haircut short and sprayed into a brown carapace, barks into a microphone. I'm not interested in discussing Alex Wilson's personal life. That's discourse beneath my campaign. But we all know Congressman Wilson is known for his extravagant taste, and if he wishes to furnish his extravagant home with tax it is his choice as an American to do so. In the end, it is the voters who will decide whether or not they want to keep in office a congressman who himself keeps an endangered species as a decorative ornament. You immediately Google, is aardvark endangered? And learn that there's actually such a thing as an endangerment rating, and the aardvark has a risk of endangerment of, quote, least concern, and sturdy-ass mammal has fucking trucked around Earth for a fucking infinity before human beings. Its origins are fucking Mesozoic. It never evolved. And it is actually one of the least endangered mammals on the planet. Human beings will all kill each other and die off, and millions of other creatures will each in their own way and time die off, but the aardvark will probably never die off, and knowing this makes you furious, not because it awakens within you some humble cognizance of your own pointless mortal frailty, which it does, but because Nancy fucking Beavers has so obviously planted this little lie to goad you, put you on the defensive, to make you talk about the aardvark, and the very last thing you want to do right now is talk about the aardvark. Just get rid of it, Toby says, and blinks bigly. Dump it into the Potomac. Say that you lost it. Toby's trying to look smart, but she just looks pretty. And she hasn't even brushed her teeth, but she smells pretty, you think. Unlike Greg Tampico, who always woke up smelling warm and weird like undercooked beef. And as you were quietly admitting to yourself that you so preferred Greg Tampico's meat scent to Toby Castle's perfume, the way out of this mess beautifully horizons across your frontal lobe. You and Toby Castle will get dressed in something clean, relaxed looking, like you've been away somewhere beachy for the weekend. You will open the green door downstairs and hold each other, waving to the reporters and grinning. You will kiss each other and wave some more, and then you will announce your engagement. 
The aardvark you will publicly share was an ill-conceived engagement gift, nothing more, one which you've been advised to return, but one which you're considering keeping because you, unlike Mrs. Beavers, you will say, you are actually in office. You would rather spend your time be spent working for the people of the great state of Virginia, and you are right at this moment working on jobs, and you want to give the people the chance to seek out and buy their own health care coverage because dignity, because Ronald Reagan was right when he said government's first duty is to protect the people, not run their lives. And look what happens when we get things for free. Ha ha. Then you'll deliver a strangled chiasmus, which is nonsense, but sounds good. Align your staffers we're saving for your next debate. After all, no one can help what is given to them, but they can give help to others. And then, in a sugary voice, Toby reminds me of this every day, you'll say, and beam. And in that moment, your re-election campaign will officially launch. And I'll stop there. (laughs) I was trying to mask laughter at so many parts in that so as not to interrupt you, Jess. Oh, that's Um, fine. The tenor and pacing of that section just, just blew me to the wall when I was reading it. I loved it. Um, so that, I think that gives people a pretty great sense of, of your style, your prose, um, the kinds of, of wryness and playfulness that are, that are wrought throughout your fiction. Um, I have a section from the convalescent that I would be happy to read if, if, uh, if you want to dip sort of backwards in time a little bit. Is that cool? Sure, of course. Okay. Uh, so this is really early. This is page eight, uh, in the convalescent and and the framing of this is uh rovar fliegman is is the mute hungarian i mentioned earlier who sells meat out of his bus in um is it front lick virginia yep on back lick road that's it <laughs> did i get those right you got it right <laughs> okay good sweet sweet okay what else i have a few pots and pans a wool blanket half shredded from the moths that come scouting at night and a big pink sweatshirt that says disneyland The sweatshirt was given to me by a Virginian who was buying some meat. She was wearing the sweatshirt, and she was with her family, and they were also wearing sweatshirts. First, she thought I was charming. Look at how little he is, she said. Harry, too, said her husband. Get a load of that beard. What is he, a midget? The woman peered down at me, suspicious. What are you, she said. Are you a midget or what? Which is fine. I am small and hairy, feeted looking. I am so small, sometimes my meat customers will ask me if I'm a midget, to which I respond in my brain, I'm not a midget, but I'm probably about as close to a midget as a person possibly can be without actually being a midget. He's a dwarf, said the husband. Dwarves are hairier than midgets. Whatever he is, I think he's just charming, the woman said. I remain bewildered that someone like me could be considered charming by anyone, but she placed one hand on the side of the bus and whispered in my ear, that she had just come back from Disneyland, and I was more charming than Disneyland. I brought out my writing tablet. Am I more charming than your husband? I wrote. She pursed her lips. Midget's got a fresh mouth. How about clouds? I wrote. Am I more charming than clouds? A magnanimous look filled her eyes. He must be a mute, she said, and clucked her tongue. Poor thing. How sad. Isn't it sad, George? God's got a funny sense of humor, said George. The woman thought it was very sad. She took off her sweatshirt and gave it to me. She patted my arm. She whispered, here you go. Which is fine. The Virginians will often take one look at the hairy little man living out of a bus in a field, at the mountain of meat that surrounds him, and then there's no holding back the magnanimity. I've been giving many items over the years, 
boots without laces, a stained coffee carafe, a brand new silver towel rack still in its original packaging. Virginians are big on magnanimity. They practically bathe in it. I bathe in a river behind the meat bus. It's called the Kwikonokachi Cook. My side of the Kwikonokachi Cook is covered in long green grasses. The far side is covered in mud. I bathe in the river with the Indian's towels and then hang them to dry on a clothesline that runs from the top of my bus to a nearby pine tree. The pine tree has wide swooping arms underneath which I keep a bucket for the containment and removal of bodily fluids and other unsavories. These I deposit into a hole in the ground. What am I, the Virginians all want to know? I live in a bus. I cut up animals. Je suis dans une seur. I am the last remaining descendant of a line of the worst sorts of losers on the planet. And that's a, that's kind of an intro to what Rovar is all about, that little homunculus that lives inside all of us. <laughs> um, and then the Disneyland sweater, the pink Disneyland sweater goes on to play a, a, a lovely role throughout the rest of the book as well. Thank you. And you read so well, too. You should read oh, you should read you. books, I think, and record them. You're really excellent at it. Yeah. Do you think so? I do. Oh, thanks. We um we had on as a guest a long time ago Sean Pratt, who is the narrator of the Infinite Jest audiobook. Oh no kidding. And so he and so he did fifty six hours, you know, plus the endnotes after that. Oh my god. Another five or six, seven hours. Um and he talked about how like people are always like, Your job sounds awesome. I wanna read audiobooks and he's like, Do you? Okay, if, if you really think that, lock yourself in a closet for five hours straight and just read out loud. And do that for like a week. And do that for another week. And then come back and ask me if, if you still like are interested in getting into this line of work or not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, okay, yeah. That gives you a sense of like the monotony of what it could be like. Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, it, what is it? I mean, what does one page take? How long does that take? I mean, oh, pay, a page Probably of... Like, Two minutes or so, I guess, minute and a half. I would say even maybe longer. I mean, if you want, if you yeah. really want to, for Infinite Jest too, like it's little, his pages are a lot denser in that. Yeah, than the yeah. average book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Oh, it was yeah. really great. Thank you. Thank you for reading that. Oh, that was thank awesome. Thank you as well. Likewise, I guess we're kind of at that time where we usually say, um, ask you if you have any kind of final thoughts, Jessica. Is there anything we haven't covered in the conversation so far about your own work? About anything you wanted to talk about about Wallace or? Uh, other writers that you like. Um, I know we talked earlier about Eli Horowitz, who was your editor oh, on yeah. Convalescent. Mm-hmm. He came up in our conversation with Adam Levin. He was his editor on The Instructions. Um, Salvador Plasencia came up before we started recording. Chris Adrian. Anything that you want to unpack further as we sort of Well, I'll just leave, I'll leave folks with a couple of recommendations. Um we, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, I uh, very recently, Debel and Unferth, who also has a novel out with McSweeney's, her first novel, Vacation, um, which everybody really should read. But she's got a new book out called Barn 8, which I just loved. Um, okay. It's about the... Um, the chicken industry um, and so much more. It's, it's like it's a caper, but it's also um, a very like a socially aware novel that um, really is asking challenging questions about our relationship with um, eating chickens and farming chickens. And basically mm-hmm. there's this group of people who are 
uh, plotting to um, to steal a million chickens, and it's great. It's called Barn Eight, <laughs> um, and I by Deb Olin Unferth. And I also recommend the novel Imperium uh, by Christian Kracht, um, who is a Swiss writer, and it's just this fabulous novel about um, a vegetarian nudist. It's based on a true story of a vegetarian <laughs> nudist who sure. like um, went down, I believe it was like the Malay Archipelago, or it was, I, I'm going to have to get the location for you guys, but um, he like left Europe and went to like, maybe the West Indies or something and started at like a nudist colony. Um, mm-hmm. And like the premise of this nudist colony was that everybody had to worship coconuts. And so this is a real guy. He actually like really lived. And so it's been novelized by Croct, but Croct like really, he t- so he takes this historical story and he messes with the truth of it and kind of gives this, this character, uh, Augustus, a brand new life. It's a wonderful novel. Um, really fabulous mm-hmm. prose. I recommend it. Um, and I also have been, you know, with teaching this course on autofiction, I discovered um, a, new, a writer from New York in the 1970s who I'd never heard of, and I just really was blown away by these three novels. He only wrote three novels. His name is Charles Wright, and it's the collected novels of Charles Wright. He's a, a black writer, a cult novelist in the 1960s. Baldwin sang his praises uh, in the 60s, and oh, yeah, I just okay. really, cool. like his voice is just, it's spectacular. It's, these are three really fun novels to read, so I'd recommend those as well, the collected novels of Charles Wright. So th- those would be the places awesome. that I would send folks uh, if they're looking for some good reading, you know, as we endure yet another month of the pandemic potentially another half half of a year of the pandemic hopefully not not that long yeah. but it's going to be a while isn't it so all, all the reading all the reading we can do we're staring at like joelle van dyne's long row of cars gleaming cars how she talks about addiction yeah if you if you if you take the evil knievel jump and you look at the long row of cars as like how many days you have to get through in sobriety versus just like one car at a time like you're kind of hosed <laughs> um, yeah that's how this feels a little bit it sure does <laughs> not to compare like being in the in the pandemic to like serious addiction or anything but like yeah no no of course and adi- it's an addiction we all have together so that's interesting you know sure yeah um have you found this to be a productive time for your writing and reading jess or has this been like really decelerating for you i've, I've seen i've heard people on like very different ends of the spectrum about this well, um, you know, that's a good question. I I had to do a lot of book promotion. You know, the novel came out in March. Yeah. So the first three months of the pandemic really were just trying to uh, figure out, um, you know, digital events and do mm-hmm. a whole variety of various kind of booky things. But then... Um, just in the last kind of month or two this summer, I did take some time off to just read, you know, and like there's always a period after a book comes out where it's like this, like the the, the, the gradual kind of quiet like returns to your life. And so I just wanted to do some reading this summer. But now I'm uh, I'm about to embark upon new, you know, the big new work. And so um I'll be starting up soon. I mean, I, but yeah, be, I mean, I think I'm in a, a little bit of a weird position because of the novel coming out right at the beginning of this thing. So that that yeah. messed with me. I'm not gonna lie. Um, but okay. I but I'm also not. I think every writer has, um, you know, a certain like page. Like you can accomplish a certain amount of pages if you're doing a certain kind of thing, right? And so, you yeah. know, there's something to be said in some ways for like 
spending time removing as much as we do adding. Um, at least from from my perspective, mm. that's how I feel. But and that remove that removing takes time. But um, you know, hey, like uh, there are there are definitely like these novelists out there who they're just constantly producing, and I and I'm you know a part of me part of me envies it, and then another part of me thinks well. But then how do you like source the next book? You know, like I I needed time this summer to read and to like, I don't know, kind of return to myself before I could write new work. And so I don't know. I think everybody's different. I don't, it's it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'll, it's really interesting. I'll tell you, you know, Updike published a book a year and there's a lot of clunkers in there. And Yeah, there uh, sure are. And Wallace <laughs> published a ton of short stories and there's some clunkers in there, man. There's some real pieces yes. of junk I think that yeah. he should not have published. Um, and yeah. there's stuff that he never published that's like, eh, it's not bad. So I, I, I think that there's definitely like no one gets it perfect, right? Um, another yeah. one of my favorite writers, David Markson, said – he was asked like, why didn't you write more? He's like, I'm just real lazy. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. That would be my answer. He's like, you know what? I'm just like – he's like, I kind of did that and it was like I kind of just got bored with it. And I was like, I'll try it. Um, but he's like, I like like laying around in the mornings, and I don't get motivated some days. He's just like, I just simple barnyard laziness. Um, so, <laughs> I like, like that. That's like, good. No one gets. Yeah, there's it a lot right. of bathos in that. I mean, no one gets it perfect, and it's like you don't have to. Uh, you know, I think about this a lot. Like, if Wallace, I think, could have just been happy, like you wrote one great fucking novel. Like, is, is yeah. that a, is that not enough? Like, it's not enough for a lot of people. Like. It's very, it's a yeah. very tricky science because they're like, no, I've, I've got to beat that. I've got to do better. I've got to do better. It's like, no, you yeah. don't. I mean, no one in my job or yeah. any other career is like, hey, you had a great year and you beat all these world records. And it's like, I got to break them again. It's like, no, you don't. You did it. But I'll mm. stop. <laughs> well, you know, yeah. And I, I would also just say that like Wallace, like. That's that story is complicated, of course, by his um, antidepressants and his, you know, addictions. Yeah. So, I mean, that was a very interlaced um, experience with the Pale King, right? With with the, his, I mean, that led to his suicide. I mean, it was a very, you know, his mind was not well. So. For sure, um, and yeah. you know, we, yeah. uh, we could go down this road, but I mean, we're we're pretty well versed in this area i would say like pretty tight with his biographer yeah and we were, I, would, I did a lot of work on that book and um yep yep uh, you know met his parents and talked to him about this so like yeah oh did you uh, wow yeah and I'm, i mean i met him too multiple times when he was alive and um sure uh definitely complicated story i'm just saying the the whole idea of like can you writing one like great song great book great poem is an amazing yeah. thing and it's you know but then jesus is done with you right like jesus is done with you <laughs> so then what man it's still we're, everyone's a work in progress but we've got a we've got a f- friend named michael o'connell who's a wallace scholar and he writes a lot about like wallace and theology stuff and he's like okay so like if wallace's fiction is redemptive if characters in infinite jest are like say you know having a redemptive experience with say Mario in Candenza, like Barry Loach is saved out of this life of the Boston streets. Right. But then he just like goes and works at a tennis Academy and he's just like taping kids ankles every day. Mm. So like if he's redeemed, like, but then what, like what's his life after that? It's just normal, boring 
banal adult stuff. But that's that's, that's like part exactly of self actualization. That, that that's what I was talking about earlier. The like yeah yeah. Serial killer cannot be happy just sitting around appreciating small things in life. The nature and beauty that they're <laughs> surrounded by in life, that is actually a really difficult thing to achieve. So Yeah, that's I, right. I disagree. That's right. It's been great talking to you, Jessica. I <laughs> Oh, I love it. You guys are awesome. Thank you uh, so much. Uh, this was so such a pleasure. You too. Yeah. I really really uh, appreciate you. Yeah, thank you for your spending, books. Staying so up late much. talk we, to us. We love them. Yeah. <laughs> Jess, if there's um is there a way that people can get in touch with you if they want to connect somehow like um, Twitter or any kind of social media stuff? Yeah, I'm on Instagram under enter the aardvark. You can find me and my dog there. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I one of your recent stories you had a Fuji and Miyagi song and I was like, "Oh yeah, that band. I haven't listened to that band in oh, like yeah. over a decade." But their first album is so great. So great. So like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, so that's I'm gonna great. I'm going to go back and listen to that. So <laughs> you inspired me. Awesome. Cool. Um, what is your preferred way for people to, to get a hold of your books, to buy them? Like, uh, We've had people on here before who said, like, please don't do the bad thing and buy it on Amazon. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely don't do the bad thing. Local bookstores. <laughs> local bookstores. Support your local bookstores. And um, I also would be happy to as like a gift for someone, like a magical gift, mm-hmm. I'd be happy to sign a copy and send it to someone. I don't know how we could do that, but um, it might be fun wow. to like, I don't know, do like a thank you for listening to the Great Concavity podcast signed copy of Enter the Aardvark. I'd oh. be happy to do that. Oh my God. Be careful. Oh my goodness. That's so generous. Well, it's, a, okay, it's so, we so need to think hugely of some generous. Kind of like... Some kind of a giveaway <laughs> or a, like, a, like a competition. Like if you actually made it to the end yeah. of this conversation... <laughs> You can <laughs> you can email Jess, and the first person to email Jess gets a I don't know I mean whatever you want to do. We'll have, a, we'll have sure, them email like us. They'll email us, and we'll get it to you. There you go, and get and get okay, me there. The first get person me their to email yep. asking for the signed Enter the Aardvark, boom, gets and one. Then we'll we'll put you in touch with Jess. Perfect. Thanks for that. Yeah, that's great. Awesome. Awesome. Cool. So we'll link to to all your website and stuff like that. Um, last kind of final housekeeping stuff. We want to thank a couple new patrons this month, uh, Jeff Pollock, and we want to thank Rachel Johnson as well. I uh, had a really good back and forth with her on Instagram over the last month, um, and she's kind of just recently discovered the show and uh, like sounds like she's been hit, like hitting it hard. So thanks, Rachel, for uh, for going through and for supporting us. We really appreciate it. And as usual, we want to thank Robin O'Neill for her art associated with our show and the band Parquet Courts for their song Instant Disassembly. And a very special shout out and thanks to uh, to John for his audio support. Yeah, tonight. John Wyman <laughs> in your house, <laughs> your audio husband, you call him. <laughs> thanks, you guys. Awesome. Thank thanks you, so much thank again. Thank you Jess. both so much. This was such a blast, and good luck with the podcast. Oh, yeah. This rocks. Thank, I will tell so my much. writer thank friends. You. Yeah. Yeah. So when you say background, what uh, what, what are you asking here? Like, <laughs> like what do you? How, how did you get to where you are as a writer now? Oh. Like what What was your trajectory as a as a published writer who's writing some of the coolest books ever made? Oh on this shit! Shit! All right, got it. Um, <laughs> Is that you more grew up in Syracuse, <laughs> outside of Syracuse. Well, you know, 